Good morning, everyone. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, on the air and live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And you're listening to Under the Surface, a talk show with a focus on rarely discussed elements of everyday life. And I'm your host, Amy Landau. Thanks so much for joining me. And today I'm very pleased because my guest is Hari Kumar. And by way of introduction, I have some excerpts I've taken straight from Hari's online bio. Hari is a teacher, story crafter, and vision caster. His roots include India, Yemen, Egypt, Arizona, and 19 consecutive winters in Massachusetts. And I should mention when I say roots that that's spelled R-O-U-T-E-S, not R-O-T-S. His professional background involves a composite career weaving engineering, teaching, and the humanities. He is a speaker and facilitator on emerging pedagogies for 21st, sec- uh, 21st century liberal arts education with a focus on inclusive teaching and whole person learning. Hari is also an active scholar in critical cultural studies specializing in performance-based research on issues of whiteness, politics, religion, gender, and mass media. And I met Hari through some political action work we did together through Indivisible, the resistance movement you've probably heard of, in response to the election of Donald Trump as president. Hari is one of the co-organizers of the Pathways to Justice Indivisible group in Florence. And Hari was also my neighbor back when I lived in Florence. So welcome to the show, Hari. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Amy. It's uh, such a joy to be here and excited to be on the program. Great. Okay. Uh, And I want to give you a little more backstory and explain what triggered me to invite Hari to be a guest on the show. Um, I made a post on Facebook. Do you remember this, Hari? Yeah. Many months ago with a photo I took of the multicultural hair section in Target. That's literally what that that section of shampoo and conditioner is called. And I thought that phrase multicultural hair was very odd and nonsensical. You know, and I always did find myself stopping short at these coded messages for the non-white hair section. And Hari responded to my post reminding me that the section used to be ethnic hair, which I feel like I've seen in CVS as well. And he wrote a very interesting post about the complexity of his feelings about this strange categorization and the fact that this section is separated from the much larger mainstream section, which gets no parallel label. Uh, this lack of labeling for the white hair, I had to go back and read uh-huh. your comments about this, Hari. The lack of labeling for the white hair section gives it the implication that it's the default hair, the hair everyone should have, yeah. you know. So it's a very con- convoluted thing when you really think about it. Uh, about what we take for granted, or some of us take for granted as normal on an everyday basis. And it was after this exchange that I asked Hari if I could interview him on the show. He agreed immediately, and he told me that his past research was precisely on this topic. And it had his, his research has had a focus on what's under the surface in the area of critical cultural studies. He also sent me some very interesting articles he wrote in regard to this type of research, qualitative research, which is called autoethnography. Am I yeah. saying that right? That's right. Yeah. So maybe we should start there, Hari. What is autoethnography? I mean, my understanding that it's kind of a research in which the researcher explores his or her own personal experience and looks for connections, broader connections. That's right. Yeah. In fact, that's a, that's a very good way of summarizing it. Uh-huh. Um, it it uh, takes from uh, the word ethnography, and ethnography is a kind of qualitative research method where a researcher will go into a community or into... Uh, an area and try to understand the ethnos, the group um, that lives in that community. 
Um, and the idea of autoethnography is to take that approach and to use that with one's own community or one's own positionality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, it's got also a very deep connection with autobiography. Mm-hmm. And my friend Brian Keith Alexander, who's a renowned scholar in autoethnography, um, describes the difference between the two as autobiography is a way of making sense of the biographic past. Autoethnography is a way of making sense of autobiography. So it's mm-hmm. taking one's own personal narrative or one's own personal experience, oh. but tracing uh-huh. and analyzing it and critiquing it mm-hmm. and trying to understand the connections between one's own st- story mm-hmm. with wider stories of race, wider stories of class, wider stories of gender, and so on. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a deep element of self-critique uh-huh. as part of autoethnography. So it's sort of like you might write your autobiography and just talk about what happened in your life, but then if you looked at it from this other perspective, it would be like, commenting on the narrative or the way that you talk about yourself or understand your life or experiences? That's right, right, yeah. exactly. So to be trying to understand what are, what are the themes that emerge uh-huh. when I try to write my own biography uh-huh. and then to understand why those themes emerge. Right. Why, why are some other themes? Why did I choose some themes over others? Right. Uh, what connections do I see between certain of those themes and larger themes in society uh-huh. and so on? Right. And so I read your two articles, and we should probably mention how other people can read these articles after we talk about that, if that's possible. Sure, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Um, but one was Languages Perform Us, Decolonizing Options for Multilingual Identities, and the other Speaking in Silences. And you talk a lot about performance and performance-based autoethnographies in your work as it relates to the body. Um, and that kind of made me think about Tanahasi. Coates' yes. book, because he refers to the body and other people I've read. So what does it mean to perform one's identity? I don't know if identity is really the right word there, but um, through one's body, what does that mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned Tanasi Coates. Um, I forget the exact quote now, but it's, it's on the front page of the, the syllabus for a course I just taught on race, uh, where Tanasi Coates reminds his son that we should never forget that all the regressions, all the charts, all the analyses, all the economies, they all land with great violence on the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, the way I think about performance is uh, about uh, how our bodies perform our lives in everyday situations. Mm-hmm. Um, in performance, there are uh, w- various ways of thinking about performance. And there's the most, some of the more standard ways of thinking about a performance are a performance that you'd go to see as a play mm-hmm. um, or a performance that, that's, uh, that you would film where there's a pretty clear line between the stage and the audience, and there's a pretty clear line between the, the, the actors and the spectators. Um, but there are other branches of performance where the lines are more blurred um, and where audiences themselves are invited into the performance and spectators become, in Augusta Boal's term, spect actors. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm more affiliated with, with that uh, realm. And then there's a whole branch of performance that that thinks about what are performances that are not necessarily scripted, mm-hmm. um, where it's not about performing a dramatic text, mm-hmm. but where the text emerges from or is improvised from everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, e- every single act can become an act. Um, mm-hmm. Greetings, you know, the, the kind of assumed scripts that we have in right. our head when somebody says, "How are you?" Uh-huh. You know, do you just say "fine"? And you're not when you're not really fine, you uh-huh. know, and, and you go on from there. So is it kind of um, just for me to put it in my words or t- to understand it better, sort of like um, you pick up these social cues about how you're supposed to behave and maybe it's informed by history and a, a lot of different elements. That's right. Know, and so yeah. you act the part whether or not, you know, it's authentic. That's right. That- yeah. And there's a whole field that, that thinks about 
well, how do we how do we recognize these cues? How do we learn these cues? How do we get socialized into these cues? Mm-hmm. So for many of us, there may be things that we're not even aware are us, you know, being socialized into certain kinds of scripts. Mm-hmm. And there's there, there, there's a process of awareness of wait a second, you know, why do I say this this way, or mm-hmm. why do I yeah. walk this way, or yeah. when such and such happens, why do I comport uh-huh. myself a certain way? Yeah, it's so interesting because your article it made me think about uh, well things I've sort of been thinking about, but put it into different language. And um, you know, one thing I've noticed is because um, I'm thinking we're we this idea of performing is something we're all doing, right, right. regardless of who we are. Um, right. And you know, I, I don't know. I was thinking about how you know. Uh, as a woman, you know, I think I've um, when I'm in a situation where there's some kind of uh, thing that has to be done that's sort of mechanical, um, I might just sort of be used to taking a back seat and like letting, yeah. you know, the males around me jump in eagerly to do to yeah. do the thing. And recently, I was like, you know, I kind of did know how to do it. It was just putting you know bike rack on my car, and yeah. I could feel this tension that the guy sort of wanted to jump in and do it for me, yeah. but it was like. But I can do it. But it was almost like a psychological thing that I had to believe yes. that, yes, I can do it. I've done it many times alone. I should yes. be able to do it even with the presence of this other person. Yes. When the audience has flipped, you know, when the right. expectation is that that person, the man was supposed to fulfill this performer role and mm-hmm. for you to be the audience. And now you're flipping mm-hmm. that on him. Yeah. And you suddenly realize you have an audience now mm-hmm. and you have to perform this 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 different script. Yeah, and in a way, it wasn't. I mean, it was a little difficult what I was physically doing, but it was also the mental thing that was difficult. Yes, you know, to yeah. like persist and not give in to the performance. Yeah, yeah. I it's at this point that uh, any of us who work in performance, we're we're uh, legally obliged to uh, cite uh, Judith Butler. She's oh. a renowned scholar in the field. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, and she wrote a book called Gender Trouble, uh-huh. uh, in which she coins the and, and theorizes the phrase. Uh, performativity, this term performativity, yeah. this idea that there are certain things that are uh, performative, they they are a doing, um, and the doing is iterated, there's a script, and uh, this gets encoded into us, um, and so after a while, it becomes so deeply enmeshed in our psyches um, that the process of actually breaking that, it, it's, it causes trouble, gender mm-hmm. trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so in her book, what she gets into is how gender itself is a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that book was foundational for exploring how, if gender is a, is a performance, um, then how can gender be troubled? How can performances of gender be troubled? Like in that instance where, mm-hmm. you, where you described, mm-hmm. that's trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, where does this trouble start? And we can, we can see the trouble start even with children who perform non-gender conformi- conforming things. So when boys decide to play with dolls, for yeah, example, right. or little girls, girls decide to play with guns Mm -hmm. um there's this real pressure that happens on the play field um, Mm -hmm. without any even even any adults present to do that kind of policing what strikes me is how blind you can be to it though i mean how you know even like even if i felt that tension i might not be interpreting oh the reason i'm feeling this is because all my life it's been this certain way which i have never questioned you know so just becoming aware of it is a huge thing you know yeah and the way uh, Judith Butler uses that phrase, she comes from a literary background, so she very deliberately uses the the, the tropes of uh, writing. Um, to, for example, she calls a citation, mm-hmm. where it's almost like we're citing these other instances, ah. um, you know, and uh-huh. so we're referring continually back yeah. to these other things. Uh-huh. And then when we branch out from that, then there is no citation at that point. We're creating something. Um, but then at that point, it, it can't be just one person deciding, okay, I'm going to perform in, in a non-conforming you know, way. It, that has to be picked up and, and um, 
you know, a bunch of people need to begin doing that in order for the for this now to be recognized as a new performance. Mm-hmm. So, right, yeah, um, and also you talk about the colonized body in a sort of you, I think you say allegedly post-colonial world. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious to know more about that. What what does that mean? Yeah, so I know it's a very heavy topic. Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> um, it that has its roots in a lot of fields that. Um, explore what the experience was for people who were colonized by um, throughout history and to look at the process of colonization and what that does to, to different cultures and mm-hmm. what that does to different people who live under conditions of colonization. Mm-hmm. Um, so those roots have, for example, um, looked at the experience of various different Indian, uh, various different groups that live on the Indian subcontinent mm-hmm. when the British came and colonized mm-hmm. India and kind of lumped India all together under one entity mm-hmm. um, and called it <laughs> India. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so to some extent then, what, is, what has that done for people who grew up in that landmass uh, under conditions where they were told that there was English and then there was their own language, mm-hmm. but that English was the superior language, and English was the language of the British Empire, mm-hmm. and that they had to learn English and and uh, assimilate into English in order to be a, a you know a subject of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Even after colonization, we still see that effect go on. So we still see how English continues to colonize in in India. Um, now it's not so much Britain, Britain that's the colonizing influence, but it's America. So there are classes in India, for example, for Indians to learn how to speak Americanized English. Oh, um, uh-huh. And so there's a there's sort of a cultural colonization that happens uh, where people are trying to assimilate into American ways of being and thinking and doing. Um, so that's that's how colonization has shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in post-colonial studies, there's a there's a way of looking at not not that somehow colonization was a thing of the past, mm-hmm. but to look at how cultural colonization mm-hmm. continues today right. in different forms. I mean, is this also applicable to, you know, um, people of color in the U.S. because of slavery? Yes, I mean, absolutely. Uh, so that any person of color, uh, especially Afri- um, African-American, is sort of, would that be appropriate to say in a way that they're inhabiting a colonized body? It's Or is it's, that a different? It, there are parallels, but I would mm-hmm. say there there's some stark differences, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, for all the colonization that happened of India, that there's a very different thing that happens to people when they're enslaved. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the relationship between colonizer and colonized is similar, but I think in some very crucial ways, very, very different from mm-hmm. um, the relationship between mm-hmm. <laughs> the forced, very forced relationship between master and slave. So mm-hmm. very dehumanized kind of way. Mm-hmm. So I'd be I'd be careful to equate those. Oh, two. OK. Yeah. Yeah, and oh, I, there was one thing I wanted to ask you before, and it was about um, the body. And the way I'm interpreting it is basically like, uh, when you say the body, is it like skin color predominantly, or just fit and physical features of the body that you know makes people, lo- you know, kind of go into an automatic performance, either the person who yeah. the person um, with that particular body or the, the people with the different bodies or especially white yeah. people. So I think this is one of the things that really interests me about um, the body is that it, it gets at, uh, it, it makes things a lot more concrete very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a way that we can think about, for example, is something a social construction or not, you know, is gender a social construction or not, is race a social construction or not. 
and the body just makes that not an abstract argument because it it we become mm-hmm. very much aware that we're not just uh, a free-floating mind trying to make an intellectual argument about whether something is a social construct or not, but that, as Tanasi quotes, this all lands, you know, with great violence on the body. So for me, the body is 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 a bit of both. It's not it's 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 both the differences, the biological differences that we have mm-hmm. in skin color or in you know body shape, texture mm-hmm. type, but also for me, it's about connecting with the physiological. Uh, responses that make up how we feel um, so that thinking isn't just something that happens in our brains as neurons firing but thinking is sometimes we we viscerally feel our body responding uh, somebody says oh, something uh-huh. and it, it gets us riled up you know mm-hmm. um, you're in a situation where uh, let's say as a woman um, you get interrupted and somebody else a man makes the exact same point you just made mm-hmm. And you're sitting in a meeting, and you have to compose yourself. But you realize that there's your, there's there's a reaction that your body is is mm-hmm. creating, and it's a physiological reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, those are socially constructed moments for sure, um, but they also are rooted in how our bodies physiologically react to our social situation. Wow. So, but it, it also does include the more obvious external characteristics Certainly. of a person when you talk Certainly. about the body and. So one of the examples I've I've um, done some performance around, I've got a short video about this, too, is uh, my eyebrows. And the, the people in the radio can't can't see this, <laughs> can't, can't see my eyebrows. Um, but you know, I'm a my body. I'm a brown and bearded man. Um, I was uh, born in South India, um, and uh, the actor Naveen Andrews, who plays the character Saeed on the TV show Lost, which is which is a white ways ago, mm-hmm. um, resembles me a lot. Oh. It turns out. That, you know, he uh, grew up in England. His parents are from the same part of South India that my parents are from. So we have a very, very similar kind of facial features. Um, now, he plays Saeed in Law. Saeed is a Middle Eastern character. And so I get mistaken for being Middle Eastern quite, oh. quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, but several years ago, one of the things I realized is that the way that uh, my face looks when I'm thinking really intently mm-hmm. is that my, I, I furrow my eyebrows. Mm-hmm. And um, so Amy can see this, others, other people can't, but this is what <laughs> I used to look like when mm-hmm. I when I would, would listen to somebody really, really He's intently. furrowing his eyebrows, yeah, everybody. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, there was an incident that happened to me about 10, 15 years ago that um, where a young man whom I was talking with, a young um, uh, uh, Latino man, uh, uh, got angry at me and and punched me, um, and uh, and then the, you know in the aftermath of that, I was brushing my teeth the next morning, looking at myself in the mirror, trying to wonder what was going on, mm-hmm. and I realized that I looked angry when I'm thinking, mm-hmm. um, and in that moment, um, I began to see connections. There was a a, a coworker who had emailed me uh, a, a sarcastic and a, and, a, and a humorous picture of a protest happening somewhere in Pakistan where there was an angry young man looking mm-hmm. at the camera with a you know burning an american flag and his face looked exactly like my face when mm-hmm. i'm thinking mm-hmm. um, and so that made me that was kind of my introduction to kind of media and cultural studies about thinking well if representations of brown bearded men from the middle east or from india when they're angry mm-hmm. um, you know uh, it's also associated with terrorism it's also mm-hmm. so associated with violence mm-hmm. um, if that's the template that people have mm-hmm. here in the us anyway for what brown men look like that way. And then I'm in a meeting and I'm just thinking, um, you know, no wonder that people might think that, you know, I'm, I'm somehow being aggressive or I'm somehow antagonistic or hostile. Mm-hmm. And so what I did uh, for a year is I practiced in the mirror, 
uh, you know, raising up my eyebrows every time I was thinking. And I would literally push, wow. you know, Amy That's singing. the one time when you don't want to have to worry about how you look. Because exactly. when you're thinking, yeah. lost in yeah. your thoughts. Yeah. And so I, I, I did that for a whole year. And now I, I, it became habit, habituated. Um, where I would, I'll just like raise up my eyebrows, and you might have noticed me do this at some mm-hmm. of our indivisible meetings. I'll, you know, as people are talking, I'll be like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> tell me more." You do have a very benign countenance. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> I've worked hard. I've practiced. I've rehearsed uh, to perform wow. thinking in a way. Um, Were you thinking of this as sort of a self-preservation thing? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So that seems so unfair, though, it is. to have yeah. to do that or you know devote time to changing your natural. Well, certainly, Facial sure. Expressions. This was also in 2003, and so keep in mind, I, mm-hmm. I would rather people think I'm benign, goofy, mm-hmm. you know, uh, than be in Guantanamo Bay. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, uh-huh. so it's. So when the Latino guy um, punched you, was it related to that then? Yeah. So uh, it turns out there's there, there's a slightly complex <coughs> backstory yeah. there, um, but. Um, yeah, he, he thought that um, I was irritated, that I was annoyed, uh, mm-hmm. that I was uh, kind of aggressively um, in his face. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this was a, a young man whom I was mentoring. Um, he oh. was a, a man uh, coming out of the juvenile de- detention system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my role was to be a, a sympathetic mm-hmm. listener. <laughs> oh. And so in some way, I failed him uh, in that role. Yeah. But this is also an example <laughs> of, you know, he's not white, I'm not white. Um, these, but these media messages are are enculturated in, in mm-hmm. both of us. Mm-hmm. There's, I don't necessarily have to be white in order to perform and perpetuate whiteness. Right, right. And I just because I'm a woman and think of myself as a feminist, I'm still I, I can still internalize sexism. That's right. You yeah. know, which is something yeah, I was very aware of during the election with Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the responses to her, but um, so what you were talking about, what you just described. Um, reminds me of an essay, and I wish I could remember who wrote it, about a, a black American man, man who wrote about um, how he likes, he had insomnia a lot, so he would take long walks at night, and he would notice people getting nervous and grabbing their bags and mm-hmm. white people moving away from him. So he taught himself to um, whistle classical music tunes. Yes, Whistling Vivaldi. Oh, you yes. know that one. Okay, well, that, that, that story yeah. uh, uh, inspired uh, a researcher named Claude Steele, to research into implicit bias. And so uh, Claude Steele has a book called Whistling Vivaldi that, uh-huh. that borrows from that. Oh, that, uh, has its genesis in that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that's a similar type of, of uh, kind yeah. of adaptive response, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I found your article, Speaking in Silences, particularly fascinating. I feel like I'm still processing it. It's It read to me like it was sort of academic, but very poetic. It was sort of seemed like poetry. And I noticed it includes, you know, a spectrum of these very uncomfortable exchanges you've had with people and mm-hmm. detailed diagrams on the various layers of responses you've had mm-hmm. after the fact. And um, some of these exchanges seem, from my point of view, um, like on the tamer but, you know, persistent side, like there's that theme you have about the where are you from yeah. kind of that's mm-hmm. sort of threaded throughout. And then others are just shocking and you know like the story of the minivan woman in oh, st yeah. louis yeah. and um who saw you with your wife who is white and and told her that she's in for a world of trouble with you because they quote because quote they meaning you oppress women yeah um mm-hmm. so i was wondering if you could describe maybe that exchange or one of these exchanges and the layers of responses you had you know we can get into that yeah little. sure yeah. yeah this this was um I'm proud of this uh, this piece. This is my first uh, 
uh, scholarly article, and I, and it's a very non-traditional scholarly article. Yeah, uh, I intended it to be um, uh, readable, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and I'm proud of that. Um, so, uh, this particular incident was uh, back when I was an engineer. Before I left engineering to study this more uh, more thoughtfully, and um, so I set it up as a scene, and uh, you know this woman p- pulls up. Uh, my wife and I are about to get into our rental car. I've just gotten done doing a, a training for engineers. I'm dressed very professionally at mm-hmm. this point. And, uh, and I'm walking from the back of the vehicle to the front after putting our bags in the car. And so the woman is talking to Alexis. I pull up and she doesn't even notice me or acknowledge me. And uh, she's talking to Alexis and she says this. I hear this as I pull up, as I walk up. Um, you know, she says, isn't he from Pakistan or someplace like that? And my wife says, well, he's from India, actually. And the woman says, well, it's the same thing. You're in for a world of trouble. My wife goes, why? Well, they oppress women where he comes from. So that incident has been playing itself over and over in my in my body since then. As I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure the common experience I've had with people who have read this is it reminds them of incidents, whatever the incidents are for them, that they have replayed over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, Recently, we just um, did a, a course in a in the Hampshire County Jail, where this was one of the articles that, that the prisoners uh, inmates read, oh. and they used this as a, a way to uh, stage their own performances. Mm-hmm. And it was this range of really powerful. And you mean a stage performance? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they uh, they they had this. They, they took incidences from their lives and they restaged oh. them wow. using this this method. That must where, have been fascinating. Wow. Yeah. So what I have on this page is right after that, where the woman says, "Well, they oppress women where he comes from." I have this big block in the middle, which basically says what I said, mm-hmm. and it says nothing. Um, of course, that's not true. I, I'm, sh- I'm sure I said stuff during that time. But in my memory, in my body, as I think back, what I said actually in the matter doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's all these other things that I wanted to say, could mm-hmm. have said, should mm-hmm. have said. Um, so one of my favorite things, you know, what I should have said is, oh, don't worry, ma'am. You know, she's wife number six. <laughs> you know, on Tuesdays, I only oppress wives numbers one, three, uh-huh. and five, or something uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. Um what I wanted to say is, you know, excuse me, ma'am, I see that you're wearing a cross on your necklace. Are you a Christian? Well, so are we. And we believe in challenging systems of oppression very much the way Jesus did against the Pharisees. And such systems exist even here in St. Louis to kind of turn the conversation back to her. Mm-hmm. So that basic framework is what I use throughout this article is to to take these moments, these everyday moments, and then to link those to these possible responses and some of these responses are sarcastic. Some of them are cruel, uh, and some of them are are you know uh, trying to do more or less um, earnest mm-hmm. turning of the tables. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 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 underlying thread here is to question where do these incidences come from? Mm-hmm. You know, not necessarily to paint the woman herself as mm-hmm. being somewhat racist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other people here that I that I uh, portray this way. The intent is not to say the problem is that person. Right. The intent is to say, to point the finger m- more broadly at what are these societal uh, scripts that we feel like we need to uh, narrate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and some of your stories even involve people who are very close to you or who are yeah. working with you in yeah. some way or mm-hmm. through your church at, the, at one point. And yeah. and I'm just wondering, well, this is sort of a side thing, but do they know that they figured into your essay? And uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> that would be. I, um, 
I think I've had a conversation with maybe only one or two people. Many of these yeah. happened a long time ago. Right. Um, right. So. Yeah. And so, and as you said, usually at the center is silence. Um, and that's also the name of that article. Um, and that seems understandable because it seems like if you were to say something, um, it might reinforce the wrong-headed view right. of the other person or that person might turn on you. And I'm just wondering if these are things that are making you end up being silent for the most part in these situations. Yeah. I mean, um, the other thing, too, is at the time, I had no idea, <laughs> right? Um, you had I, no idea what to say. I had no, well, I, yeah. didn't know, I didn't know what to say. I also didn't know uh, why I found these problematic, right? So th- mm-hmm. this is a, there's a way in which... This is this is autoethnography. This is me trying to make sense of my autobiography. Mm-hmm. So, um, at the time, I, I had no well-developed um, understanding of these stories or where they come from. Um, so, even my responses to them, if I were able to say these things, m- would not necessarily have been productive. I don't think. Um, me looking back now, of course, there's things I would say differently. And now when somebody asks me where I'm from, mm-hmm. I have a whole repertoire of uh, possible things I will say to them mm-hmm. based on how I read the context. So I feel much more prepared for that kind of scenario now mm-hmm. as a result of doing this kind of analysis of what happened back then. Mm-hmm. There are probably things I'm saying and doing right now that five years from now I'm going to look back and say, what was I thinking? Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm going to do this analysis of my autobiography five years from now. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah so was there a time i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off was there a time when when you did say what you wanted to say or should have said in i mean not just the where are you from question which now you say you have a handle on that but like these other type of you know difficult scenarios Hmm. Hmm. i'm just curious if you if you did do that or you've done that and and what what happened Mm -hmm. Um, certainly i mean yeah i'm a uh, you, you mentioned silences, and so silences is a big theme through this. Um, and there, are, one of the things I see here is um, all I have are, are for you are maddening silences, these silences that rage so loudly in my own body. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of the folks that know me uh, know that I'm not somebody to just stay silent, um, that mm-hmm. I, I do speak up. <laughs> right. Um, and so I've certainly said stuff that uh, to, to challenge uh, people and all, but more more generally to challenge ways of thinking, mm-hmm. um, and and sometimes I've I've said stuff that are uh, pretty provocative, pretty challenging, mm-hmm. um, and uh, looking back, I, I probably should have used you know uh, more subtle ways of challenging. And there are other times where I've said stuff that were too subtle, you mm-hmm. know, and and people didn't quite realize mm-hmm. that I was actually trying to criticize something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in that example you gave on where you could have said, oh, this is wife number two or whatever it is. Was that an example of what you should have said in that situation? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Because was it what you what you put down is what you should have said? No, this this particular person. Oh, you mean uh, in your. yeah, Yeah. In your diagram of possible responses. Yeah. Was that what you were imagining that you what should I, have said or wanted to say. I think that's I, what you wanted to say. What I, that's what I wanted to okay, say. Okay, all right. Um, because what's interesting about that is it, in a way that makes it something that's more for you and you then have the, uh, like, it's the joke. It's like the in-joke with yourself and the whole situation. And it doesn't even matter if this woman understands. Yeah, it, it doesn't yeah. actually transcend the barrier, though. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. In, in that case, what I, so what I actually said then 
was actually more along the lines of what I wanted to say. I actually said to her, um, uh, you know, I do see that you're wearing a necklace. Are you a Christian? Mm-hmm. I didn't tell her that we were also Christian. Oh, um, I, okay. I, I did. I, I basically said, why don't you go talk to, because what she was saying there when they went, when she said, well, they oppress women where he comes from, you know, she said, uh, they, they treat women like sex objects. Mm-hmm. And so I, I told her, are you aware of the women right here in St. Louis who are being oppressed and feel like they're being treated like sex objects? Oh, that's a good answer. And yeah. she got really flustered and upset, you know, mm-hmm. and she was like, I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I've, I've never been treated like a sex object or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it, we were both heated at that point and she was confused. I was getting angry because I was, it was just sinking into me. Like this was a completely inappropriate thing this woman has just done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she drove away. Um, so we didn't, you know, that's, a, you know, I, I don't think it was a mode where she was open to conversation mm-hmm. at that point. Right. I mean, she wasn't even acknowledging your presence. Right. right? It was all yeah. directed towards your wife. Yeah. And you, but you did bring up the Christian thing. And what's interesting is if you didn't have that, if you weren't a Christian, right. that's a whole other yes. yeah. thing. So, yeah, wow. I think we should pause here and then you know take a little musical break with um, some music that I think really relates to this idea of like moments where you um, have these different thoughts that you, and things you want to say, but something is stopping you from saying them. Sure. And we're also going to have a few announcements. So here, let's let's take a listen to Nina Simone. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Do, though I'm way 
you're just joining us, welcome. This is Under the Surface, and you're listening to WXOJ Northampton on the air at 103.3 FM and live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And we just heard a song called I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free, sung by Nina Simone. I thought this song was perfect for the conversation we're having today about race, um, among other topics, because it's about how one can get can be sort of locked into a wrong, wrong-headed perceptions and judgments by, by others conveyed by the dominant white culture and unable to break free. At least that's sort of what I think about it. There's obviously many interpretations. And, you know, to say what one wants to say or be who we really are. And uh, my guest is Hari Kumar. Um, as I mentioned before, he's a scholar in critical cultural studies. And um, in regard to this question that you brought up, Hari, and in the the article we were talking about uh, that you get you know frequently where are you from yeah. you get that question a lot and uh, i'll admit i'm i've caught myself wondering this too about uh, other people who look or talk differently from me and wanting to ask it of people you know myself in certain contexts and in fact it made me think about a time when um i was w- uh, with some friends this is when i was in georgia we went to a thai restaurant and there was, you know, probably our server. And I, I said something to my friend who is actually of mixed racial background. I said something like, oh, I wonder where she's from if she's part Thai. And my friend just said, it doesn't matter. That's mm. not important. Mm. And I felt that, wow, this like, it was a little offensive to her. And then I thought, well, think about who, she, mm-hmm. you know, herself, her own experience. And I guess I, it really made me think a lot, just that little subtle thing and kind of come to the because I know that it is always awkward yeah. when I want to know this. And it's like, I guess I think, well, I've come to the conclusion it's none of my business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that the question itself is presumptuous and maybe offensive. Yeah. Because I am taking how that person looks or certain superficial characteristics about them mm-hmm. and I guess suggesting that they're not from here. So I just like to hear your take on that question and what sure. what it actually suggests. Sure, yeah. And uh you know, it's 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 not like people ought to suddenly feel um like they're walking on eggshells, you know, um, and to be like, well, I can't ask where am I, fr- where, where is somebody from? That's mm-hmm. how a racist question. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not, that's not it at all. It's, it's the cumulative effect of being asked that question so many times, right? right? That right. makes me kind of want to then question, question the question. Uh-huh. Um, and it's actually something that I think we all could do more often is mm-hmm. question our questions. Right. Um, and so for me, the where are you from question has more to do with, so what's the intent behind this question? Mm-hmm. What's the context behind this question? Um, and there's the the impetus to say, well, I find you interesting because you seem to be from someplace far away from here. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's a there's a deep under that there's a, a long histories of that interestingness, that desire for the exotic. Uh, leading to colonization and empire and oh, so on. Right? Uh-huh. I see. Um, so Edward Said gets into this in his book on Orientalism, um, on how the Orient is is for <laughs> the, the, that whole idea is constructed um, out of this desire for the exotic. So 
So I want to kind of push back on that and say, well, why don't you find your own neighbor as interesting? Um, what are things that you're assuming about your neighbor that you'd be surprised if you found out just mm-hmm. just how exotic your neighbor actually is? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so for me, that's the that's that's part of it. The other part of it is, uh, can't you think of any other more interesting question to ask? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like the old, uh, you know, if you're if you're trying to strike up a conversation with somebody you want to date at a bar, the worst thing you can do is comment on the weather, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, except maybe in New England where the weather does change. <laughs> um, but so along those lines, if it's a so there are folks who've said to me, the, "Where are you from?" thing is just a, a conversational gambit, mm-hmm. and I, I get that it's a it's a good way to get a, start a conversation going. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say find uh, find other ways to start a conversation going. Mm-hmm. So, because here's what it comes down to me. So when people ask me where, where am I from, and I say I'm from Massachusetts, mm-hmm. um, there's a bit of a double take. Then they want to challenge you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's where the problem is, right? So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. You said you wanted to do, do this as a conversational gambit. You just wanted to find out where I'm from because mm-hmm. I seemed interesting to you in some way. Mm-hmm. And so I've just told you, I've disclosed to you, I've answered the question. I'm from Massachusetts. So what is it about me that makes you want to ask more? Mm-hmm. What is it about me that makes you doubt that I actually doubt, doubt my claim? That's the offensive part, mm-hmm. right? So, well, where are you really from? Mm-hmm. Or, well, where are your parents from? Mm-hmm. Well, where are you born here? Yeah, they're trying yeah. to find a way to get this information from you for yeah. some reason. Yes. Is, is that going to somehow make p- them feel more comfortable yeah exactly with you you're right you know, know or have I, have I just piqued their curiosity even more mm-hmm. you know have I just become even more interesting mm-hmm. more exotic um, either of those is, is any of those things are really really problematic so what I would say is somebody asked me where I'm from and I say I'm from Massachusetts take me at my word <laughs> you know mm-hmm. <laughs> extend to me the same courtesy you would to mm-hmm. anybody else that you would ask mm-hmm. who would say they're from someplace mm-hmm. so when my wife and i are, are out and about for example and a nobody ever asks her where she's from right um and uh so and she could be from germany and then exactly. just lost her accent over time or right. whatever yeah, so yeah, it does yeah. come back to the body and the yeah. external body is that's exactly saying. it yeah. so what is it about that external body you know mm-hmm. what is it about my presentation of self Mm-hmm. When I used to teach public speaking, one of the things I used to do is I'd walk into the classroom and uh, you know uh, put on an accent uh, because the students have not seen me before; they've not, they don't know me. Right. You and had this in your article, yeah, about language. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, would, so you put on an accent. I would put okay. on an accent, uh-huh. and then I would switch my accent about a minute in. I'd, I'd go into my sort of intro spiel about mm-hmm. like, "Welcome everybody to public speaking. You know, mm-hmm. here's the syllabus. We're going to go through this other stuff." And uh, as I as I do that spiel, I would switch my accent about two or three different times, um, and I'd put on kind of a stereotypical Indian accent to start with. I'd switch it to a stereotypical kind of Arab accent. I'd switch that to a stereotypical Texan accent. Wow! You know, yeah, and you can do a lot of accents. I can. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's part of having grown up in a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and what would happen is that at some at some point I'd switch to this. This is my sort of this is my way of speaking. Mm-hmm. And uh, there would often be a puzzled look and I would, you know, mm-hmm. I'd pause and like, you know, as a good teacher, I'm concerned that there's puzzlement in the classroom. And uh, and a student would often say, what happened to your accent? And I would say, what, what accent? And I would say, well, you started out with an accent, but you don't have one now. Mm-hmm. And I'd use that as a point of departure to say, no, no this is still an accent. Oh. You know, I'm still uh-huh. speaking with an accent right oh, now. I see. You okay. know, this accent just happens to be mm-hmm. uh, an accent that people are people feel is normal. Mm-hmm. And listeners right now may may, as I said that story, they might have been trying to imagine what it was like for me to hear me speak in the in a different accent, in an Indian accent, in a in a uh, in an Arab accent. And I've deliberately chosen not to perform that on the radio because this is still a performance right now. This mm-hmm. accent that I'm speaking with right now. Mm-hmm. So. 
So what are the cues? So when somebody asks me where you're from and I speak back like this and I say I'm from Massachusetts, um, this is not a Massachusetts accent, by the way. Um, Why do you say this is a performance right now, the way you're speaking now? Because this is an accent that, again, like that eyebrows thing. Uh-huh. Um, okay, I, I, that I, you've I, arrived on. I've arrived you. on, okay. I've practiced, I've rehearsed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've, I've learned to speak in this way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, my parents are visiting right now from India. Um, and there's a way that, uh, and, and people who have family from other parts of the world can probably resonate with this. When I'm on the phone with my parents in India or when, when I'm speaking mm-hmm. with somebody, my accent shifts, my body shifts, the way I, I my gestures and mannerisms shift. Um, and it's, it's all like code switching in some way, right? Right. Um, so that makes me realize that even what I think is just my normal thing, that's itself a, a performance. It's an habituated oh, performance. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, so for me, the where are you from question, why that's uh, problematic is that it's trying to fix an origin for me. Um, it's tra- it's somebody's trying to mm-hmm. locate me in space and time. Um, and I'm trying to communicate to them that my journey is actually a lot more interesting than my origin. Oh, right. Uh, um, right. And also just getting that question all the time, it's sort of like a constant harassment that, well, people are not seeing me as from here. At yeah. what point point do you become from here? Like yeah. you've been here 19 years or something? and uh, 20 consecutive winners. Uh-huh. Uh, so I need to update that by Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And the winter, that says a lot. You've yeah. been through 20 Massachusetts winners. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I've talked to other people. I knew someone who had an English accent who was from England, and he really hated always getting that question. And for some reason, he got it more in New York than on the West Coast. Hmm, the West Coast, there's a different... Um, yeah kind of culture like you know people don't ask as much those questions like what do you do for work right. as they do or at least they used to not ask that interesting um and they also didn't seem to ask him that question where are you from yeah as much yeah you so. know dave Chappelle has a really interesting skit where he he describes how predominantly white people um, ask questions about the most inconsequential stuff mm-hmm. um and but they don't want to talk about the stuff that's actually consequential so he has mm-hmm. a skit where he's he and his neighbor are talking and uh, the neighbor wants to tell Dave all about the neighbor's sex life. Mm-hmm. And Dave's like, okay, well, that's all fine. But, hey, who did you vote for? <laughs> and the neighbor's like, oh, whoa, whoa, that's really personal. You know, I, I don't want to get into that. You <laughs> know, like, but let me tell you about this interesting sexual thing we did. Yeah. And Dave's like, that doesn't matter. It's, it's so uh-huh. totally inconsequential uh, uh-huh. what you do with your wife. But uh-huh. uh, but you voting for somebody that yeah. actually is going to take away my rights, that's really consequential. Let's uh-huh. talk about that. Why did you vote for this guy? Uh-huh. Um, and so that's that's for me like... Uh, I'd rather talk about that than the where are you from. Uh-huh. Um, Do you think there's something more sinister underlying the, this um, that instinct, though, to pin people down and say, where are you from? Absolutely. I mean, is there something else? Yeah, like um, so that I can now label you and know that you're different and I'm right in thinking that you're different? Yeah, yeah. And it, this, this, I'm glad you said sinister because uh, the movie Get Out uh, right. came out. And yeah. uh, I love that movie. I, I taught a course on race recently and... The movie came out halfway through my course, and I immediately, I, I saw the movie, um, and then I immediately scrapped a whole week of the syllabus, replaced wow. the whole week of the syllabus, and had uh-huh. my students, we went, we went to go see the movie together, uh-huh. and that became our, because there's something sinister, there's something horrifying, and here's how it plays out, and people don't, you know, I, there's nothing, I don't think people are intending to be malicious when they, when they ask this, mm-hmm. but here's how it plays out. Say somebody asks me, where are, you, where are you from, and I say, okay, I'm from Massachusetts, and it's, they, they, they persist, they want to mm-hmm. locate me. And mm-hmm. I eventually say, you know, well, I was born in India. Mm-hmm. From that point on, I've noticed what happens is this person then refers to me, to other people as, oh, here's Hari, he's Indian. Oh. I'm like, no, I'm not. 
I'm American. Right. I've just told you I'm from Massachusetts. I'm claiming that I'm from Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you never asked me what my nationality was. Mm-hmm. You know. And if you ask me, you'll you'll find out that it's it matters to me that I'm American. Yeah. Um, and it you know the indivisible group. You know, I'm uh, as a patriot, as a patriotic American, I'm fighting in the resistance to try to overthrow mm-hmm. this regime. That's true. Um, so I'm American. I'm not Indian. I'm not mm-hmm. going to like flee America and go back to India. Mm-hmm. So this whole because what that does is it raises the this trope of go back to where you came from. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, no, this is this is where I am from now. I right? see. So, yeah. so, and that the person who then labels me as Indian is not thinking that is does not does not know how much it hurts me to mm-hmm. be late to be referred to casually as. Oh, by the way, here's Hari. He's Indian. Uh-huh. Uh You know, that's a that's a hurtful thing for uh-huh. me. Yeah, right? it's not how you're identifying. No. Yeah. Not at all. Right. So. And then you have to deal with that with their whole decision about you <laughs> right or whatever. yeah exactly wow. so that's where the sinister part comes in is that mm-hmm. you're asking this to put some label on me that i mm-hmm. disavow i don't i'm right. not accepting that uh-huh. label yeah um and you know even for folks that are comfortable with that you know who will say yeah fine you know i do have indian heritage and i, I and that matters to me too and i'm mm-hmm. happy to claim indian heritage even for those folks there's that slight disjarring thing of like so when do i get accepted as mm-hmm. you know being he- yeah. here i mean I, I mean i also think that um there is curious do you agree that there's also curiosity but i mean like we were saying before it's so much contingent on your physical presence yeah. and that's the problem but that people feel like they want to know that they know that you've had a different journey than sure. they've had absolutely but, you know and oh, so they yeah. i get it feel I'm, like that's a way to understand more about you oh sure absolutely but, i get it I, i'm curious about people right. all the time too but it, it shouldn't be the first question maybe no because it's a right. pretty intimate question right yeah yeah you know yeah it's, in, it's it's interesting it's an intimate question and yet it's the first superficial thing that people want to know yeah. or or um maybe i shouldn't say people that's too vague do you, well, do you find, although you you had a story in there about an African-American woman who asked you that, which right. was very interesting. Right, yeah. The three people involved in that story was this African-American woman. She was a attendant at a cafe out at a coffee shop on campus. Um, and then my advisor, he uh, is, he will say he's from Brazil mm-hmm. um, and me. And so none of us are um, American, white people right mm-hmm. but all three of us were playing off of the same kinds of tropes so mm-hmm. um there was a, a woman that came up to me uh, more recently uh, i was at a cafe in northampton and uh, she comes up and she says excuse me but can i ask where you're from mm-hmm. and i said I'd, I'd rather not i'm i was just trying to get a coffee you know? <laughs> <laughs> i'd rather not say and she's like, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. And, and she walks away. And I, I felt bad uh-huh. because she was a woman of color. And one uh-huh. of the things I've decided is that if it's a person of color or if it's somebody from, from India mm-hmm. who's asking, um, I, you know, I'll, I'll just out myself pretty quickly to them. Um, You'll what? I'll out myself oh, pretty quickly. So you feel like that context is very different. It's a different context, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, that immigrants, when they ask me, there's, there's, they're ask, often there's a, there's there's a feeling of like well do we have some shared solidarity around our immigrant narratives and i'm i'm happier to to accommodate right. that curiosity mm-hmm. so I, I went over and said oh, look i'm sorry it's just a question that i get all the time and she mm-hmm. goes no no i understand she said 
um, and you know, she said, "I'm from Trinidad, and you look like somebody from Trinidad." Oh. So I just wanted to know. Uh-huh. I'm like, "Oh, okay, you know, no, uh, but you know, I, I, I was born in India." She goes, "Ah, oh, that explains that there are a lot of Indians in Trinidad, mm-hmm. and so you're an Indian." I'm like, "Oh crap, I'm not Indian." But, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get into that with with her yeah. in the coffee shop. Right? Yeah. So there are times where that curiosity—it's brief, it's fleeting, and it's—it's it's not worthwhile for me to get into it. I'll just, right. you know, yeah, you know, say something to get yeah. out of the situation. The other thing I'm reminded of is maybe it's in your. Uh, was it the article about language that as a child, when you were um, in Yemen, yeah. you were oft- often taunted with, you know, people asking, yes. are you Hindi and yes. making judgments about you? Yeah. So based on that, quite a lot you were because, bullied yeah. by that question. That's so, right. yeah. yeah. So there's it's like this long history with that question, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. And there's a, a great video clip uh, called What Kind of Asian Are You? And it features an Asian woman. And she's just out for a jog in San Francisco, and this white man stops by to ask her, you know, where are you from? Um, and you can see that there's a moment where she just goes, oh, you're asking this again, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. So there's there's histories of trauma that a lot of people carry with yeah. them based on this. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to um, mention that, you know, just reading your articles and thinking over my own evolution in terms of um, thinking about race and white privilege. I know that I've evolved a lot, like since my 20s and 30s. And I've become one thing I've become more aware of is the voices in my head, the uncensored voices Mm -hmm. about what pops into my head when I meet a person of color. And I've noticed it's especially with a black American. Mm -hmm. This is weird to admit this, but the show is under the surface, right? So um, and it's just this extreme consciousness that I have of skin color and and maybe the weight of American history and all the messages I've gotten, you know, even if they weren't said to me in words, and mm-hmm. I, even if I was always gotten, you know, no, don't see color, etc. <laughs> I was still obviously seeing people of color in a separate, you know, culture from mine, etc. And or, or, or even living in different areas. And um, so I've begun to recognize that I'm kind of brain damaged by racism and uh, white supremacism that's embedded in this country. And I'm just, it really bothers me. (laughs) And I'm just wondering if you think, and maybe we all are, and I'm wondering if you think there's a way to undo that damage. And yeah, I mean, how can we do that? I know I once heard there was a workshop called Undoing Racism. Yeah, I don't know if you've Mm -hmm. heard of that. I never took it, but I was like, curious. Yeah, there's a group down in Springfield, uh, the Healing Racism Institute that does amazing work on this. And Mm -hmm. they've got great workshops to go to. There are local groups. Uh, there's an Embrace Race Coalition mm-hmm. um, in the area. Um, out in Amherst, there's a great group um, uh, led by Russ Vernon Jones um, that's about uh, uh, conversations on racism, especially are, are among white people. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend um, a lot of those resources. Um, it does have to do with also educating ourselves on how this um, how this continues in a lot of situations, right? So this the where are you from situation context question, for example, plays itself out in how, for example, black people get stopped disproportionately mm-hmm. compared to white people. As even, and maybe especially, black people who live in predominantly white communities, um, there's, there's the sort of this hidden feeling when a police officer sees a black person in a say a wealthy white community the immediate assumption is this person is not from here Mm -hmm. so that's the right where is this person from that Mm -hmm. impetus that question pops into their head sinisterly right away Mm -hmm. we're seeing lately reports that police officers across the country uh, feel empowered um, to act as immigration agents so when there's a traffic stop or an incident where the person looks latino latina 
they feel like they can ask for legal status. Right. And so again, there's that. Mm -hmm. So this, what people might think of as just a pretty fairly benign thing. Well, of course the police officer's Mm -hmm. entitled to ask that. That person clearly could not belong here Mm -hmm. to kind of question and see how that plays itself out on a, on a macro scale. Um, And there's nothing, I would say like talking about race is not racist. Uh, And I think for a lot of people, there's this, feeling like we talk about race too much mm-hmm. um, yeah because you have these people who say oh i was taught not to see skin color right. and i'm like no you weren't and yeah. that's just sorry yeah. <laughs> that's not true can't say it on the radio Go on. yeah yeah i mean yeah so i would say just getting past that yes it's damaging but it's it's um uh so find ways of learning about it that are are truly authentic you know so you get you get to be in a place where you can ask the questions that you really want to ask Mm -hmm. um and there uh it's it's difficult to do that if you don't have that many people of color around you for one for Mm -hmm. one thing yeah because then even the people of color that you do ask they're suddenly the burden where (laughs) they have to then educate you (laughs) (laughs) and that's not their job right uh, people of color are not paid nearly well enough to educate white people Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, so um, so the, I think the better response there is to find coalitions. If you're a white person and you're really interested in this and you're listening to this right now mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, I want to learn, but I, I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm just so saturated mm-hmm. with talk about race, racism. I, I'm worried about asking the wrong question. Or, or yeah, everybody's afraid of sounding racist or yeah. admitting the racism that they might have already kind of prepackaged in their conscience. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> And consciousness, it, yeah. Right. And it doesn't help that we, we tend to hear on social media uh, uh, of particularly charged racist incidents. And then all the discussion around it becomes charged with like, how can you say that you're being racist? Mm-hmm. And you're like, I just thought I wanted to ask this question. Oh, you know? yeah. So uh, find find a better community to ask those mm-hmm. questions vulnerably. Yeah. Uh, particularly among if you're white, fi- try to find communities in your area that are also white mm-hmm. that um, are committed to talking about this openly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and maybe learning more about the history of this country would yeah. be, be good. And I would recommend two movies to go watch. Okay, um, is Get Out. Right, uh, it's an excellent, excellent movie. It's billed as a horror movie. Right, I've tried to convince so many white people to go watch the movie with me, mm-hmm. and I saw it. <laughs> great, excellent, yeah, yeah. and because not, of you. Yes, yeah. all right, yeah. 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 And it's not a horror movie, right? I mean, it's it's got well, it does have some horrible, sure, violence. In it. Right, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. not used to horror movies, so ah, for me okay, that was yeah. hard. Yeah, so it's not a horror movie in that classical sense of the word. Uh-huh. But Jordan Peele has done a great thing by packaging it as a horror movie uh-huh. because it does get at the horrifying aspects of living uh-huh. as a black person right. in, in America. Yeah, and so I'd ask people to go watch that movie. Uh, because it it just does so much. The second movie I would recommend people watching is Thirteenth, the, the uh-huh. documentary. Oh, um, yeah. oh Eva, yes, I've heard about that. I've yes, heard that's excellent. It is yeah. Eva DuVernay. Yeah. Um, yeah, we watched that movie in my class too, and right. um, it had an impact on so many students in my class, both uh-huh. the students of color and especially the white students in my class. Yeah, I want to see so, that. Yeah, yeah. So um, we're running out. We've pretty much run out of time. But I'm glad you got to mention the movie Get Out, which deals with um, racism. And I want to leave our listeners with a song that that you picked out that Hari picked out by is his name childish gambino Gambino, yeah yeah called Redbone, and the song comes from the film get out yeah 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 it's the intro uh it's the song that plays over the title scenes in the Uh movie as the main character in the movie he's preparing for this weekend trip and so the song is playing in the background so the backstory is that jordan peele heard the song loved it used it in the movie wanted to know what childish gambino thought of it 
one of the refrains in the in the song is uh, is, is a word of caution to people and saying um, you know stay woke mm-hmm. uh, because they're coming to get you and right. so yeah so that's uh, uh, that that's the resonant uh, yeah. part of the movie for me is to yeah. stay awake. Yeah, that's definitely, and that goes for everybody, right? right yeah. So I want to thank you, Hari, for joining me today. Thank you so much. This has been an excellent and illuminating conversation. Thanks to our listeners. This is WXAJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM on the air and live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. Please tune in again next week, Sunday, 11 to 12, and enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks, Hari, for being here. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be here.